Hey listeners, today's episode deals with topics of child abuse and child death. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed in the description. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I have a disclaimer. We're off to a good start. What's your disclaimer? <laughs> so both of our partners, as you know, are out for a walk. I do. And Davey has brought Neville this time instead of Harrison. Oh. So Harrison's alone upstairs. So who knows how this is going to go? <laughs> well, y- let me just add a- another complicating factor, which is the gardeners have been showing up at a very irregular schedule lately and i see their van across the street and so Mm. it's possible that we might not only have gardening noises suddenly we might also have all three of my dogs losing their absolute shit (laughs) listeners welcome to our new asmr podcast (laughs) (laughs) hi hi i feel like it's been a long time it kind of it's been a long time since we've like connected in real life but it's It's been a really long effing week. Yes, I agree. It has been a long week. There's nothing like logging in in the morning for work. And the first message you see is, hey, I'm going to be out for today and tomorrow. Here's everything that's undone. (laughs) The worst. (laughs) It's never a fun email to start the day with. (laughs) No, I want to start the day with like, hey, you've got a raise. Hey, you're looking good. (laughs) (laughs) Ugh, honestly. What I would give to hear either of those things. Maybe we should start a like pay it forward thing. Everyone should, at the end of the night, email someone you like <laughs> to saying, hey, you're looking good. So that's the first <laughs> thing they see the next morning. <laughs> and then we'll and then we'll be sued for all the sexual harassment <laughs> claims that come Ooh, in. <laughs> okay, pick, pick something better. But yeah. What about you? How are, how are you doing? I'm fine. I uh, work has also been kind of hectic this past week um mm-hmm. miles and i started re-watching downton abbey i think he had oh. never seen the later seasons Me and we neither. had watched we had watched so many true crime and serial killer things in a row i was like i just want something that kind of feels like a hug oh yeah <laughs> and so we decided on downton abbey <laughs> a cold hug but a hug absolutely <laughs> a very cold and distant <laughs> hug but a little bit of a hug i love downton abbey so cute it's so, so sweet good. it's just so pretty to watch are you gonna watch the reboot when it comes out they're doing a reboot yeah they keep previewing it on peacock what of course really? you have to pay for it i'm sure but i know we're gonna cave and pay for peacock i, I could see it already i am confused because they did the movie but they're doing more tv to my knowledge i think they're doing a reboot unless they're just advertising heavily the that movie they, the, the tv show maybe they got all the rights for the whole series oh. and they're gonna put it on there or something i really yeah. don't know but it looks like something downtown abbey is coming up on the horizon and you know the, the <laughs> about the big housewives thing that's coming out on peacock right it sounds pretty incredible and i also just saw today that potomac is coming back again this season this summer mm. so we've got <laughs> beverly hills we've got new york we've got potomac <laughs> a friend of mine they put a story up recently. They work at a restaurant and they were serving their Real Housewives of Potomac while they were filming, like a couple weeks ago. And I was like, I need to know all the details. <laughs> oh my god! Here's what I want to know. I 
am wondering if they can tell us whether all of the other people in the restaurant are extras. Ooh, I'll reach out. I'll reach out. Okay, because that's been my biggest question is sometimes I feel like there's a legit, like a real, real people around them. And then sometimes I think there's no way that these aren't extras because the way that these women are behaving, I would be gawking at them if I was in that restaurant. (laughs) Do you remember the season of OC where they went on a trip together and they got like real wide? I think it was Bronwyn's first season and everyone in the restaurant was just like staring at them in like horror. Yes, (laughs) I do. Maybe on vacations, it's just people that are there that have to sign like as they get seated that they'll probably put their faces on camera and then probably locally it's like, yeah, this restaurant's closed for a few hours. Because otherwise I feel like everything would leak if it wasn't extras i i mean it probably does i'm just not on the internet enough i am on the internet enough (laughs) and i don't see it but also it that reminded me of that time in new york recently where they were all in i don't remember where but lee like the ramona was like let's just eat at the bar let's eat at the bar and they were in that seaside town maybe in the hamptons Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and everybody was behaving like complete monsters yes yes exactly and everybody was staring at them Speaking of Housewives and guest stars. Yes. Does that work? I don't know. <laughs> sure. Last week at the beginning of the episode that I was recapping, I told you there were two guest stars that were specifically for you. And I okay. forgot to highlight the second one. Okay. Okay. This is even better than the one from Sex in the City, I think. So okay. her, her husband and ep- boyfriend in the episode, Christopher, the other, you know, defendant. He is played by Reed Diamond. I sent you a photograph of him. You can look okay, at it now. I'm opening if you'd like. my text now. And is he on Dollhouse? Yes. Okay. Yeah, He's he was like the secret agent man on Dollhouse. Lawrence Dominic. Yeah, he was good in Dollhouse. I and never I watched it. He was but the I know boyfriend. He, he was. Yeah, that was Christopher. He was the cab driver with the accent and the you know ex lawyer. Wow, I would not have like connected that that was the same person. Yeah, and he evidently was a main primary cast member on Homicide: Life on the Street for like a million years. So he. Huh. Good for you. Yeah, Dollhouse. I was like, when I saw that on the list, I was like, ooh, that is something I have to call out to end. Yeah, I Dollhouse is one of my favorite shows. Ugh, I got to see that. I don't know how that missed me because I love Elijah Dushku. Who who made it? It's the same guy who did. Um, yeah, it's it's Joss Whedon. I like a lot of his stuff though. Well, that yeah. at that point, turns least. out he's a trash person. Oh no! <laughs> oh, like mega mega trash person. Like no really way. really really abusive and bad. <gasps> oh, I had no idea. Allegedly, this is all rumors uh. that I'm hearing. <laughs> I am not. That is my opinion based on things that I have heard. <laughs> Do you want me to edit that out or no? <laughs> no, it's fine. Okay, <laughs> that's all I had for um, non recommendation type stuff. So great. Um, well, I don't think I have any recommendations <laughs> or anything, oh. but I see that you have a couple. I have a couple. Um, One I'm just going to bring up really quickly. It's an old recommendation. I may have done it season one, but it's relevant to the crime today. Are you going to talk about... Okay, go ahead. The Keepers? (gasps) So good. I think I recommended that a while back. You might have. I watched it... Because of my favorite murder, I think. They had recommended Mm, it early on. Yeah. And I, I loved it. It was definitely different than I expected. I highly recommend it to anyone out there who's looking for a true crime type of thing to watch really great and some of the topics in that documentary are going to be in my um my crime today yeah so just bringing it back up and the other two recommendations i have is we started watching the netflix special on the cecil hotel the crime scene is that the one about elizabeth lamb eliza lamb yes eliza lamb i heard that it was not great okay 
So we're, I don't know how many episodes long it is. We're in like episode four or five. It doesn't seem like much longer. It okay. started out great. Like the first two episodes I really found fascinating. Mm-hmm. And they talk a lot about things that aren't in some of the other Eliza Lamb things. Like huh, they talk okay. about the location of the hotel being in Skid Row and they do a lot of information on that. And yeah. um, anyway, the thing about it that is really obnoxious that is almost making it hard to get through the last episodes Mm -hmm. you know they interview experts usually for these things you know or experts or people who have strong opinions and have credentials of some sort connections (laughs) to the crime yes they started making one of the primary people they're interviewing no no offense to you out there wherever you are the co-creator of the eliza lamb facebook group no. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, but that's kind. That kind of reminds me of "Don't Fuck with Cats." Yeah, it, it would remind me of that if he had done anything contributing to like solving the case or investigating. It yeah. seems like him and the people they interview that are related to him. In my opinion, <laughs> the the kind of true crime fans that I don't particularly like to associate with. Yeah, they seem to be like. One of the things they talked about was like, oh, yeah, they go to the hotel. They go to the, the site of the Cecil Hotel. And mm-hmm. the guy's like, yeah, I, I must have been here like over the past however many years, like 20 times. But you're not, you're just going to the hotel room. You're like glorifying <laughs> this like, ooh, look, this thing happened here. There's no, you're not looking for evidence. You're just saying I was here. And he's saying like, oh, I was crying. I felt so connected to this. No connection to this woman. It's just very strange. And the way he talks Specifically this person, when he talks on the camera, it's like he is loving, loving the attention. The attention. So uh, even like the that, last the last episode we watched, Davey was like, maybe he did it. <laughs> See, that's the thing, is I I understand people getting interested in true crime as mm-hmm. we're sitting here recording our true crime podcast. <laughs> what I don't love is when people start to make it about themselves. You know? Yeah. Yes. Like it's not about you and your process of getting really invested in this true crime no that kind of that's kind of gross to me exactly so i will say it's very good i'm learning a lot of things i didn't know i have a few more details that make me kind of like oh i didn't know that that was actually compelling and i didn't hear that anywhere else and it seems valid yeah just get through the in my maybe some people will love him get through this guy and i think (laughs) i think it's good other than him like very good so there's that and the last recommendation is a youtube channel i don't know if you've ever seen it but uh, it's called Ask a Mortician. Oh, God. Okay. And it's hosted by Caitlin. It's D-O-U-G-H-T-Y. Probably Dodie. Probably Dodie. So Caitlin Dodie, you can search her YouTube any rela- channel. Any relation to Kristen Dodie from Vanderpump Rules? I thought think? that too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. She is in California, though, I believe. But it's really interesting. She does a lot of different topics. It's really well done. It's not corny. It's not cheesy at all. She's very funny. She's talks about heavy things in a very easy to understand way she's an expert in her field she's written books and she's just great and delightful and she does a very very wide array of topics from like supernatural things um people will write in questions and she'll do a deep dive on them a lot of things about of course like death and the funeral process and she talks about historical things new things it's really good highly 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 recommend Oh, you know what? We watched something recently that I actually do want to recommend. Let me look it up really fast. Oh, yay. I would love to collaborate with her, by the way. So if you're listening out there, Caitlin, and if you do that kind of thing, we would <laughs> die to collaborate. <laughs> Send her an email. Yeah, I should, right? I, I don't think I recommended this already, but it's called How to Fix a Drug Scandal. Have you heard of Ooh, that? Oh, I've watched. Do- it's two parts, right? Yes. I watched the first part. 
it might be like three or four parts. I can't remember okay. exactly. Um, but it was good. It's it's about you know a <laughs> it's about drug testing and the tremendous um uh, margin for well not margin <laughs> for error but margin for human influ- human influence on what we think of as an objective scientific process. Yeah, it was really. I mean, the, the part I saw was really interesting. I, I don't know yeah. why I stopped watching that. That was months ago. I started that. Oh well, you're welcome. <laughs> all right should we actually get into today's episode i'm so ready all right this is episode seven of season two of law and order and the episode is called in memory of so yet again law and order it opens with beat cops so Mm -hmm. that is officially number five of my recently revised eight beat cop openings so Mm -hmm. i only have to get three more in like 14 episodes i will give them at least this time the beat cops weren't just in a car they were like kind of on foot (laughs) yes correct they were standing outside a little different (laughs) so they're outside and they're talking to some construction workers the conversation of course is meaningless they're probably doing the usual thing about complaining about their spouses i wasn't Mm -hmm. really paying attention to that part uh when suddenly another construction worker screams hey you cops come here And they run into the construction site and they kind of like crawl into this area, sort of maybe in the basement, it looks like. And we see a wall that's been opened as part of the construction and some Pirates of the Caribbean quality bones that do not look in any way real. And I think, yes, one of the construction workers takes out a napkin and picks up a perfectly clean human skull. (laughs) And I, I wanted I wanted to know, does that count as like one of the pieces of evidence being picked up by like a pen or pencil? I I don't know. It I was mean, not the right procedure. It was like just a napkin and I think later on they're handling it with bare hands. Yes. Yes. There's like 50 people at this crime scene all just fingering everything. Ooh. <laughs> so this is a child's skull, and it's very dark in these scenes. I'm unclear if it's a construction worker or some scientific expert, because somebody is holding the skull and is like, oh, it's a child. It must be an eight or nine-year-old. I don't but know But I thought it was a construction could... <laughs> worker. <laughs> I thought so, too. And how would you be able to deduce that right there, and then and there? No idea. I okay. guess. I'm not size. a skull expert. Yeah. <laughs> They also say that there's a massive skull fracture on the skull. So they're like, ooh, this, you know, body hidden in the wall. This is weird. And also, here's what I want to know. The bones Mm. are pristine, like perfectly clean. That's why I describe them as Pirates of the Caribbean bones. There is like no smell of rotting body. There's nothing else but bones. And yet they're like, this child had a JFK for president button with him. So we know he's been inside the wall for 31 years. Well, A, what was that button attached to? And B, how do you know it wasn't just randomly in the wall along with these bones? I can't imagine the only two things that were recovered from the wall were bones and a, and a pin. Honestly. <laughs> anyway, so it's a JFK for president button. So they're like, well, this child's bones have been in this wall for 31 years. And then we get the title sequence. And I chose to take advantage of that time and do a little treasure hunting of my own. 
I found the Ark of the Covenant, but I didn't quite have enough time before we came back from the title sequence to figure out how to open it safely without melting my face. So mm. that's for another day. I was going to say, did you just leave it or did you retrieve it? <laughs> it's in my living room at the moment. Ah, lovely. So... Now, after the title sequence, we're back in the station, and they're trying to figure out, number one, they're having a hard time figuring out who this child even is, or who he could have been, because, you know, this is 31-some-odd years ago, and so they start, okay, here's the thing. Wouldn't you start with some things like, who were the tenants of the building? Sure, But instead, (laughs) they start with, who are all of the missing children from 30-some-odd years ago? It seems like the much more difficult route to take, but it pays off for them because in a very short period of time, Logan shouts, bingo, Mm -hmm. and is like, male eight-year-old who lived across the street from the address where we found the bones. This has got to be him. So again, some pretty miraculously fast detective work uh, for looking up all of the missing children from New York City 30 years ago. By hand in paper files with no In paper files. Yes. So they go to track down the detectives who were working the original missing persons case, and they find one of the detectives who is currently playing tennis, and they're like, hey, whatever your name is, detective so-and-so, like, do you remember a case about Tommy something or other? And he immediately, like, rattles off a million details. He's like, scar above his face, five feet tall, blonde hair, like, he remembers everything. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's five feet tall. I don't know how (laughs) how tall an eight-year-old is. Not five feet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they, uh, he's like, I remember every detail. The other detective who was on the case with me, he never let it go either. He died a few years ago of prostate cancer. Um, and so this detective's immediate first thought is, he's like, there was a gay couple who lived in that building. <gasps> I know. Shocking. No. I knew so, it. So... By the way, this episode, multiple times, in not great ways, talks about how people perceive queer, like, quote-unquote, back then, thought, Mm. like, queer people were pedophiles. And they mention that a lot in this episode, but never really address that that is inaccurate or a problem, except for, like, one line. Yeah. So we'll get to that. They decide to go track down the mother of the missing child, and she's a retired teacher. She talks about how hard it was losing him, but what was even harder was when she realized she had given up hope that he was ever coming home. And they ask if she remembered who lived at the building, uh, 583, where the bones were found at the time. And she's like, no, I don't remember who my neighbors were 30 years ago. Like, that was a long time ago. Honestly, and they seemed frustrated. I was like, "Um, I don't even know my neighbors today. (laughs) No, and let alone, like, neighbors in a different building. You know? Yeah. Doesn't make sense. So she does remember one woman who... uh, was friends with Tommy at the time, a little girl who lived in the neighborhood. And so they go to interview her. Her name is uh, Julie. And they go and interview her, and immediately she's kind of like cagey and acting a little strange. And she's like, let me go get some water. And Logan and Soretta are kind of like giving each other eyeballs, like, what's going on here? And then they hear like an, oh, and like the shatter of a glass because she's lost consciousness. She passed out and broke the glass. She comes to and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just felt so sick thinking about how Tommy must have died. And they don't really say anything. And she's like, well, it's like logical that he was murdered, right? Like 
his bones were found inside of a wall. And so at this moment, I'm thinking like, oh, are they trying to say that this woman killed him and like hid his bones? Because that was kind of like, she knows a little too much or something. Yeah. I'm always looking for like who did it in, in these things. Uh-huh. My yes. theory was that it was going to be the the police officer who passed away from the, oh. the disease. Because he was like, oh. oh. They're like, yeah, he was always calling and asking about it randomly. And I was like, hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. P.S. Her outfits in this whole episode oh. consist almost entirely of scrunchies the size of satellite dishes <laughs> they are so like you can see if she's looking at you straight on the scrunchie sticks out larger than the circumference of her head they are enormous scrunchies. and she's always wearing at least two at um, least and they're like she might as well have been like tourniqueting her hair <laughs> oh uh, yes okay so listen the their the, her hair this episode reminds me so much of my mom used to have this hair device in the 80s where you would like put your hair in a ponytail and it was this loop on like a pointed oh, stick and I know you would kind of like stick it through the hair and it would like flip it around and so you'd have like a sassy ponytail and i guarantee you they used one of those in styling her hair in this episode that item is called a topsy tail <gasps> I remember How do you that. Know that? <laughs> the annals of my mind are. Is that how we say annals? Well, you wouldn't say annals. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> or would I? Annals well, of my mind. <laughs> have... Limitless capacity for useless information. Exactly. Topsy tail. It was red. <laughs> it was red. Yes. Okay. So they ask her if she knew about the two gay men who lived on the fourth floor of the building at the time that Tommy disappeared. And she's like, no, sorry. So they go to interview her parents to see if they remember. And her parents very sweetly are like, well, in those days, we wouldn't have called them a couple. Mm. So one of them, we learned his name was Ed Conover. And he, I guess, was a member of a church group. So they go and interview a priest And the priest is like, listen, stop harassing him. Yes, he approached a young boy when he was part of this church group working with youth, but, you know, he didn't do anything and you need to stop harassing him. And so they go to interview Ed, the gay man who was living there at the apartment at the time to kind of find out more about him and if he knows anything about Tommy's disappearance and if there is supposedly this connection to him, quote unquote, making a pass at a child. Mm-hmm. So we go we cut to the old folks home and Ed is kind of a no nonsense guy. He's like, I know what you all think that like all gays molest kids, like you can go fuck yourself. That's not what happened. And so this is the only moment in the entire episode where they trouble that narrative and Soretta says, "Well, we know that most child molesters are straight." So that's like the only moment where they point out that uh this whole Queer people are child molesters narrative is super false. Yeah. Only once, but at least they said it. At least they said it. I guess. I guess. (laughs) So... Soretta, uh, you know, is kind of pressing him and Ed is like, oh, okay, you want the truth? All right, then. Well, we took Tommy down there and we tortured and killed him. And we used to do that once a week. And then just kind of like, is like, screw you. Get the fuck away from me. I don't know anything. And he wheels himself off screen. (laughs) Bye. Bye. So they go back to the fainting woman, Julie. And she's like, why are you still talking to me? This case must be closed. (laughs) The fainting woman. (laughs) 
it's kind of like the silent woman, the yeah. restaurant uh, that oh, the... Shannon and Kelly had oh, their blow about. I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking of like the weeping woman and like old wives tales. Not <laughs> like old, La Llorona. Like, lore and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the fainting woman. She's the so scary. Woman. She shows up in yes. your room and then as soon as you look at her, she passes out. <laughs> Hits the floor. She's the human equivalent of a possum. <laughs> She is like, I'm so busy, so busy, busy, busy. Uh, I don't have time to talk to you. And they're like, a child is dead. Don't you have time to care about that? So they really badger her into participating into the investigation of this case. Talk about a guilt trip. Very much. But they get her to meet with Dr. Olivet, who is the police psychiatrist or psychologist. I can't remember which word they used. Mm -hmm. And she is trying to help her recover her memories of what might have happened during that day that Tommy disappeared. Or kind of to get past whatever trauma is keeping her from remembering the day. Because she has talked about how she kind of doesn't really have a lot of memories from that time. Yeah. And Dr. Olivet is like, well, she she talked about when in our session how she, quote, kept seeing red and blue. And Logan is like, okay, well, the kid was wearing like tan shorts, a green shirt. Maybe it was in the like disappearance information that the mother provided, but the yeah. bones clearly had no clothes on them. So that was strange. I will also say when they said all she was seeing was red and blue, I was like, ooh, it's police lights. Oh, <laughs> that's clever. I, I felt was like, like I was really building a case. You know what? I immediately went to red and blue clothing, but I feel like that's a much cleverer jump. Could have been. So, well, and so you're right on track because they go to talk to the parents, uh, Julie's parents, and they're like, you know, can you help us convince Julie to continue working with the therapist? Like, maybe she'll remember more. And the dad's like, we're not going to help her, like, revisit her trauma, like, or revisit uh, memories and dig up old stuff, like, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, do you know anything about red and blue? <laughs> Which is the vaguest question. And the parents are like, uh, I mean, they're primary colors. You mix them and you get purple. Like, what do you expect out of, do you know anything about red and blue? Mm-hmm. So they convince Julie to give it one more shot with a the therapist. And so she ends up walking around the neighborhood with the therapist and Logan and Soretta. And she's kind of recreating her memories of the day. <laughs> and she remembers how, you know, they went and got candy and they were walking back toward the house. And as they were approaching the apartment building, she saw that Ed Conover, the, the gay man, was sitting on the stoop of the building and how it made her really uncomfortable to have to walk past him. Um, okay. <sighs> yeah. She, they go inside the building, which again is under renovation, and she kind of is like, here's my, my bedroom. I, I remember I went to sleep and I woke up and I wanted to brush my teeth. And I walked into the bedroom and then uh, she starts like weeping and falls to the ground and is like, red and blue, red and blue. And is like, oh, it's my father's sweater. He's washing a blue sweater in the bathtub, but it's all covered with blood. You know, I would argue with her that it probably would be like more purple. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) blood is not bright red, so I don't know. I mean, the color of the sweater... Wouldn't have been red and blue. It would have been blue and like Listen, dark brown. If you know anything about when you mix two primary colors Hello. together, you get a secondary color. Secondary? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. 
So we switch to the law side now, and essentially the district attorneys are trying to talk to build up a case against her dad because they're like, listen, all we've got is her sort of recovered memory of her dad washing a sweater and he was bloody, the sweater was bloody. Stone and Robinette are like, well, we don't really have much here because she's always had a terrible relationship with her dad. So if we're trying this case against her dad and she's our only evidence, it's just going to look like she's setting him up because she hated him, etc. They go to talk to the dad and he's also not very helpful or forthcoming and basically threatens Stone and Robinette and is like, if you bring this case against me, these are false allegations, I will file a civil suit against the city, so you better proceed very carefully. So then Robinette goes to interview the dad's former employer and is kind of trying to get a sense of the dad's character. Do you remember anything from around that time? And the employer basically says how they had to fire him. His name is uh, Messimer, is his last name. So he says that Messimer was essentially a drunk, and you could always smell the alcohol on him, and he got fired along with another co-worker for, you know, being drunk on the job. So they go to, go and interview that coworker, and the coworker immediately is like, "Oh, Thomas Messimer, what's he in trouble for? Like assaulting children?" <laughs> right off the bat, and they're like, "Um, could you say more about that?" And he tells a story about how he once saw Messimer go into a men's restroom, and he didn't come out for a while. And when he went in, he saw Messimer and a cop and a young kid who he was supposedly making a pass at the child. I don't like that phrasing, personally. No. And so they go and interview the kid in that story, who is now an adult. And he says that Messimer had, uh, you know, supposedly come on to him and offered him $20 in exchange for what we don't ever really know. Mm -hmm. Um, But he turned him down and Messimer, like, went wild, got really upset, big bug eyes, and grabbed his arm and started to get more and more wild and out of control. He was like... I remember he he looked back at me and his eyes were bulging out of his head like a cartoon character, like a monster. Ooh, did you ever watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, yes. Oh. Do you remember his eyes, uh, Count Judge or whatever his name is? He was so scary. Is it Count Judge? The bad guy? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember his name, but he was so scary. Uh, now I want to look it up. Judge Doom. Oh, you got it before me. That was Christopher Lloyd? Mm-hmm. God, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Oh, I love that movie. We're back in the DA's office, and they're like, well, we still don't have much of a case, but we, and because essentially they're sort of saying, well, we can't use this previous incident of him trying to assault a child when there was no charges officially filed against him in that incident. So while they're talking about how they really don't have much of anything for this case, they get a phone call, and it's Judy, Julie's mother. And Mrs. Messimer is like, Julie's not going to testify. Okay, bye. (laughs) And so they get Julie back into the station and she's like, sorry, I'm not going to testify. I must have made a mistake. I'm, you know, da, 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 da. My mom and dad are trying to get me not to participate. They, They think it's all kind of in my head. And they do this little gotcha moment where they're like, okay, okay, sure, sure, sure. Um, we uh, we just have somebody we want you to meet really quickly. And they bring in the mother of the dead child. And she's like, very Obi-Wan Kenobi, like, Julie, you're my only hope. I guess that's Princess Leia, not Obi-Wan Kenobi. So she's very Princess Leia. And she convinces her to testify that 
you know, you're the only hope that I'll ever have justice for my child who was who was killed. So they bring Messimer to trial. They charge him with murder in the second degree. And at trial, a medical expert testifies that the injuries on the skeletal remains indicate that Tommy was killed by a blow to the head with a heavy object. By the way, I'm unclear how they ever proved that these remains were Tommy because they don't talk about DNA and they only describe this JFK pin. Oh, which they, by the way, they had dental records. Why would an eight-year-old be wearing a JFK pin? <laughs> I know. I, I don't remember being particularly invested in politics at eight years old. I thought that was such a strange detail, too. Yes, very strange. Okay. So on the stand, Tommy's mom testifies that Mr. Messimer, the man who's accused of killing her child, was kind of a little too affectionate with Tommy. He would take him out to baseball games, etc. So he definitely had access to Tommy. And Julie gets on the stand and testifies to the events of the day and how, again, she and Tommy went to get candy. And when they got home, she remembers going to the bathroom after she had fallen asleep and saw her father kneeling at the bathtub, washing blood out of a blue sweater. And she tells the jury how she remembers asking, like, Dad, are you okay? Like, did you get hurt? And she says he turned to her and he had blood on his face and he looked wild and like he was going to hit her. And the prosecution then tries to undermine her testimony and is, like, asking her all of these really rude and insensitive questions about her history of mental illness and her poor relationship with her father. And my favorite rude question that he asks is, hasn't your whole life just kind of been a disaster? And by the way, he's asking her all these questions and she never, like he's asking them in such rapid fire that she never actually even gets to answer a question. So when he's like, hasn't your whole life been a disaster? Stone is like, objection. And she never actually answers any questions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's just sitting there like, sobbing (laughs) which i I feel like he didn't do anything i feel like he should have said like yes he should have told the jury to disregard all of that (laughs) exactly (laughs) he just says like okay that's enough like he's a lazy parent on the playground like uh (laughs) like hey your your kids pulling my kid's hair and they're like yelling over their over their shoulder hey stop it's like uh it's like willy wonka (laughs) and the chocolate factory when uh when the kids are all dying exactly (laughs) (laughs) police (sighs) so at this point, you know, everything's been pretty strangely circumstantial. But mm-hmm. despite that, the father decides to change his mind and is willing to accept the plea bargain. And so he confesses to the lesser charge of manslaughter. And the judge is like, okay, fine, but I need you for the record to tell the court how you committed the crime. And so he confesses that he hit Tommy with a lug wrench that was sitting next to the boiler, and he saw that he was dead, and he put him in the wall, and I'm sorry. And that's, like, the extent of it. Uh Uh-huh. And so, you know, he pleads, so he's found guilty. And so Robinette and Stone talk about how, after this is afterwards, Robinette and Stone talk about how he would have been convicted of this crime. So, like, why did we allow him to plea? And Stone is like, well, you know, he's going to serve time in jail, and now his daughter has the peace of mind of knowing that she wasn't imagining the whole thing, and she can finally have some peace. And that's Mm -hmm. the end of the episode. And it was, frankly, a relatively disappointing conclusion to me, like how it all wrapped up. 
I feel like they spent a lot of time on the investigation, and then they were like, fuck, we have five minutes. We got to wrap up this trial part. I completely um, Okay, agree. make him confess. Yes. Yeah. That was the... I actually really enjoyed the episode, like, watchability-wise, for the most part. Yeah. Until then. <laughs> it was very... It was Bone Collector-esque, where they just decided, uh, well, we've had almost an hour of footage here. We got to... Got to conclude this somehow. Um, let's make the father confess for no apparent reason. None. <laughs> oh, well, good job. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the true crime of this. Uh, okay, well, I don't know if you've heard of it before. I've heard of similar crimes. I don't know if I've heard of this one. Okay, let me ask you this. While I was watching this episode, Miles was kind of wandering around, and I asked him this question. I have a distinct memory of a scripted TV show, like a, a British procedural true crime. Not true crime, I guess, because it's scripted. But it was about, like, two old men who were, like, rock stars in the 60s, and they had, like, a girl come to their flat, and I don't know if... They assaulted her, or she died of a drug overdose, something. Anyway, she ended up dead, and they put her in the wall. And then, like, 30 years later, one of the two men of the, like, rock group had died. And so the other guy was like, well, I guess it's time to come oh. clean. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Uh... And he, like, confesses while he's, like, in a weird tunnel, like an underground tunnel. I have very clear memories of this storyline but i can't for the life of me think of what show it is the rock star detail and the person in the wall detail sound very they stand out to me i will tell you in this true crime i don't think there is any there's no wall oh okay so it's not related to the wall there's no queer people totally fictionalized didn't even need to be in the episode definitely dick wolf (laughs) thanks dick wolf but everything else in the crime is is uh is related in some way okay okay great this episode is inspired by the murder of Susan K. Nason. Okay. Okay. So I do we'll... not recognize the name so far. Yeah, I didn't either. You might recognize the suspect, but we'll get there. Okay. And as we said, all of our sources will be on the website. Um, there were a few pieces of media that were made about this case that I did not watch, but I'll just mention them here because they're kind of interesting. There's a, I don't know if it was a made-for-TV movie or a Lifetime movie, but it was called Gone in the Night in 1996 about this. Okay. There's a movie, made-for-TV movie starring Shelley Long, who I love, <gasps> uh, in 1992 called Fatal Memories. Um, okay. It's directly based on this, like all the characters' names are the same. What? And um, there's a book written by someone involved in the case um, in 1991 called Sins of the Father. Hmm. Okay. Mm. Okay. So... On the afternoon of September 22nd, in 1969, in the newly founded Foster City in San Mateo County, California, nine-year-old Susan Nason arrived home from school as usual and greeted her mother, Margaret. She asked her if she could return one of her friend's gym shoes, and because it was 1969, her mom said, sure, go ahead, on your own. She, she might as well have been like, take the long way, you know, if you get tired, hitchhike back, you're eight years old, nine years old, Enjoy. no problem. I feel like there was zero concept of stranger danger. Oh, totally. All they were worried about was like jello salad and Salisbury steak. And <laughs> But I mean, like you said, jo- joking aside, I'm not trying to shame the mom. It was the 60s. And we know oh, that yeah. like up until like the 90s and maybe even some people today, people are like leaving their doors unlocked and your kids are going out unattended. So, oh my God, it, I feel like leaving your doors unlocked was such a a thing that even to until the day she died my grandmother like was really bad about locking her front door 
Oh yeah, I'm, Which was I'm like not great about two years ago. <laughs> I used to leave my old car door unlocked a lot when I would be in a rush because I was like, oh. Oh, my car's so old, no one's going to take this piece of shit. <laughs> and then <laughs> someone <laughs> did and they ran you over with it. And that time it was locked. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Okay, so in addition to it being the 60s, the neighborhood they lived in was pretty newly formed, as I mentioned, and it was fairly isolated. It had been built basically to be, you know, a little safe haven, like a little cute community. It had, yeah, it had one road in and one road out, and its motto at the time was growing beautifully. Where was this again? This is in San Mateo County. The city is Foster City. Okay. And San Mateo County is Santa Bar- or California, right? Yes, up north um, near San Francisco, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I feel like it's, my brain always just assumes that they're going to use cases from New York, but they, yeah. obviously we've covered a lot of cases that weren't New York specific. I feel like we've seen a few California ones, actually, oddly. Yeah, actually, the Menendez brothers, mm-hmm. yeah. Remind By the me, way, <laughs> I wonder if we're going to say the same thing. Sinisterhood? No, I was going to talk about something about the Menendez brothers. Well, I was going to talk about this, the Sinisterhood episodes of the Menendez Brothers. Oh, okay. They, if you haven't listened to it, they do a really good job of covering it. And um, I think do a real, what I really like about the way that they handled those episodes in particular are like, they talk multiple times about like, there are multiple truths involved in this scenario. Like you can feel sympathy for the fact that the Menendez Brothers were reported to have been assaulted and sexually abused by their father like their entire life mm-hmm. and also not approve of them killing their parents yes you, know? you can so hold it, both things yes exactly and they do an excellent job of of exploring both of those truths uh i have to listen to those what i would not recommend that i watched <laughs> the other day you might have seen it on my instagram story <laughs> I was watching um, this, like, 2020 ABC thing about yes, the Menendez okay. Brothers. Yes. And I had seen it before, but they're, like, repackaging an old episode of 2020 about the Menendez Brothers, and they're adding in one tiny detail that makes it more current. Ugh. Um, and the detail they added in to make this, like, back on TV is uh-huh. kids on TikTok are talking about the Menendez Brothers because of a recent meme, and they think they should be let free and innocent. And they show, like, a bunch of TikTok videos of girls and boys that are, like, in their teens being like, I've never heard about the Menendez Brothers, but they were clearly abused, and they should not be in jail. This is ridiculous. That's all they show. They don't explore it. <clears throat> they don't do anything. They just show a bunch of people who have <laughs> just heard about the Menendez Brothers for the first time on TikTok and are now yeah. um, interested because... The older brother, oh, I'm sorry, the younger brother has become a meme because people think he's hot. Don't well, I watch. think <laughs> <laughs> number one, let's not. I don't. Okay, I have don't so many. I have so many things to say. Me too. But you, the first you get the one, idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the first thing I wanted to say was that I think that in in the Sinisterhood episodes about the Menendez brothers, they talk about how the media really mocked the fact that they were sexual assault survivors. Mm-hmm. And I think you talked about that when you covered it too. Like they really got, again, multiple truths. I am not defending their actions of killing their parents. No. But they the way that the media talked about like men as sexual assault survivors at that time was really fucked up. <laughs> For a long, 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 long time. Yeah. There's still so. a really terrible stigma today. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Sorry. I, no, I've no. really <laughs> taken us on a tangent here. That's okay. 
Yeah, so the neighborhood was built to be, it was built to basically attract young families to the area. They had like low priced um, three to four bedroom homes. And as I said, the motto was growing beautifully. It was supposed to be this like little safe haven in the 60s. That sounds like the little city that uh, Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington are in, in Little Fires Everywhere. Exactly. I was thinking Shaker Heights. (laughs) I was going to say, I feel like their tagline might actually have been like growing beautifully in that show it was similar and i remember hearing the Brene brown episode where she interviewed the author and she said i mean shaker heights is a real place and all of the things oh. that she, and she lived there growing up as an asian american oh. and so she experienced a lot of like how racism was viewed back then and all of the themes of like the main narrative that was being pushed by people who wanted to be like not racist versus anti-racist was like we don't see color you know and (laughs) like her experience with that kind of shaped how she wrote the story and Mm. um all the things she wrote about shaker heights and their like motto from back in the day were real like actual wow things and she includes them in i think uh the copy of the book like a page from the newspaper like at or the newsletter about that city at the time so i'm really awesome i was thinking the same thing all right, so the mom lets her leave and return the gym shoes. She leaves around 4 p.m., and she never returned home. She'd been missing for a few weeks. This is nine-year-old Susan. There's no leads. Nothing is coming up. But on December 2nd, just over two months after she went missing, her body was found in the Crystal Springs Lake area of San Mateo County. Her head had been caved in behind her ear, which was likely the cause of death. Um, Due to the state of decomposition, whether she'd been sexually assaulted could not be determined. Mm. She was identified by dental records. Um, Also, a ring she commonly wore and her parents, Margaret and Donald, were able to help identify her body. Police Chief Gordon Penfold described the couple as having had an emotional collapse. Susan Nason was a lively young girl with light reddish brown hair. When she was found, she was wearing a dress that her mother recognized her own hand stitching on. The ring she was wearing was damaged, suggesting that she had been trying to protect herself or fight off the attacker. And there's not a whole lot else about Susan on the internet, um, but there is an online memorial that you can look up that shows her headstone and has an area for messages and testimonials. Hmm. Foster City Police at the time had very little evidence to go on. Um, They said it would be a tough case to crack, but they were on it, and they were correct. It went cold for a really, really long time. Hmm. Until... And this is where, mm. <laughs> if this was a TV show, you'd hear like the thumping heartbeat or like tense music. <laughs> you've seen that. I feel, I think it was on Twitter, but you've seen that picture where it's like every true crime documentary is like the normal American family. Everything was fine until it wasn't. <laughs> and then it like switch it, like inverts the colors yes. on the family photograph so that they're all, they look all spooky. A hundred percent. Lots of rapid cuts. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so we're fast-forwarding almost 20 years to the future. November 28th, 1989, George Franklin is arrested for the murder of Susan Nason more than 20 years after she went missing. This was precipitated by her childhood friend coming forward after, like we said, almost 20 years with a shocking statement that she had, Hmm. you know, information on the crime. Hmm. The tipster, we'll call her, is named Eileen Franklin Lipsker. She's 29 okay. years old, and George Franklin is her father. <gasps> oh, crap. Mm. Okay. So George Franklin, now 50 years old, uh, was arrested for the not only the abduction, but the murder of Susan all those years ago. 
can I say something that is probably, that is a realization I had the other day that is probably remarkably stupid, but mm. I, it like hit me as I was watching a commercial for I think it was in between RuPaul's Drag Race, they were advertising true crime Mm -hmm. show last night of, like, big killers like Eileen Warnos and Ted Bundy and all that. And somebody said something like, you would never expect it to be Ted or whatever. And I was like, you know, the the whole premise of, of like, a serial killer or, like, a some kind of serial predator is that, obviously, they're not the person you would think. Exactly. Otherwise, they wouldn't be getting away with it. <laughs> right. Otherwise, there would be no serial. <laughs> Which is so scary because then you think about, like, anybody I know could be a serial killer. <laughs> Yikes. We... It reminds me of the book we're reading and how everybody that these girls know in the White Tower Ugh. could be an Aes Sedai. A hundred percent. A black Kaja. A black Kaja. Yeah. yeah. We have another podcast, by the way. If you like fantasy series... Check out our other podcast, Cool Story. Highly recommend. It's really good. That's my recommendation for this week. I highly recommend ourselves. (laughs) All right. So um, Eileen has come forward saying that she had this repressed memory and she had repressed it for so many years, Mm. but she had seen her father murder Susan with a rock as a child. Susan's father, Donald, was relieved when he hears all of this, saying he'd always felt that the person responsible would eventually be found. Wow. When arrested, George Franklin was found to have no prior record. He was living a pretty unremarkable life as a separated father of five kids, um, and he was on disability from the fire department for many years. Eileen claimed uh, that she had been Susan's best friend as a kid and wondered why she had never been questioned before. It should be noted that Susan's father has said before that he doesn't really remember the Franklin family, despite Hmm. being in the same neighborhood just a block and a half away. But um, by Susan's recollection and some other neighborhood kids, they were very good friends. That's weird. Yeah, it seems like the father wasn't really around a lot. Okay, but so maybe he didn't really know who she was playing with and hanging out with? possible, so. Okay, okay. But at the time before the trial, as her father pled not guilty to the murder charge, of course, the only details that were public were that about her, um, I don't want to say confession, about her testimony, I guess, to the police, Mm-hmm. was that she saw her father commit the crime in their family van with a rock and that um, the motive was to cover up a sexual assault. Oh. Well, uh, oh. Mm. And there's no okay. details besides that that were made public at that time. Okay. She said, quote, I don't think I'll ever lead a normal life again. I'm not just the witness to a crime, a witness to a crime that my father committed, the same man who was the father of all my brothers and sisters and grandfather to my children, end quote. Ugh. So she also helps provide a little more detail into who Susan was. Um, this is the only other details about her. She says yeah. that they they had both had reddish hair and freckles growing up, and that that's how they initially bonded, because they were teased at school a little <laughs> bit because of it. Mm-hmm. So she says that the impact of this has made it really hard for her to make friends in her um, adolescence and adult life even, because hmm. she, you know, has oh, this loss. The of... impact of her friend being killed, yes. not not her being a redhead. No. <laughs> the I way mean, you maybe. went from like being teased for being a redhead to like she can't make any <laughs> friends as an adult, I was like, what? Sorry, I guess uh, the impact of it because she was such close friends with uh, yeah. Susan is that she's had a hard time making friends because you know she always feels like people are going to disappear. Oh, and so she also mentions earlier in the papers that. She hasn't had a lot of experience of people not believing her testimony, but she does overhear herself being talked about everywhere she goes. The well, tr- I, I mean, whenever you're telling me a true crime story and I don't know the conclusion, mm-hmm. I 
am always a little bit like, I try to like withhold like, okay, that's good. Like that must be true or any (laughs) of that because I don't know where this story is going. But based on what you have just said to me so far, I understand that because if she's saying like her death had such an impact on me into my adulthood, but I was never questioned and I just recently recovered this memory and the the father of the girl who was killed doesn't even remember that I was friends with her. Like that doesn't, line up a lot yeah so it seems for me not having all the information at this point it seems like i can understand why people would question her account of the story so far yeah definitely okay so the trial begins in the spring of 1990 so about a year later and eileen was the star witness she barely glanced at her father while on the stand it said and she testified that as she watched her own children playing her daughter looked back at her. This is Eileen as, a, as an adult. So mm-hmm. um, at 29 years old, her daughter looked back at her one day while they were playing and the position of her body and the color of her eyes were so striking to her and it triggered this flash of a memory in her and this feeling mm-hmm. of being frightened. And she suddenly like heard herself blurt out, no. And she, she couldn't shake the feeling and the memory and the flashes that were coming to her for weeks after this moment. She even Hmm. saw a therapist about it, and her husband eventually urged her to make a statement. And then I think the husband actually is the one who calls the police. Okay. So during the trial, Susan's mother also testifies on the stand that her daughter, and this is Susan, um, the deceased. I don't want to mix them up with Eileen. So Susan's mother testified on the stand that her daughter was very aware of strangers, and her daughter never took a ride with one before. So Hmm. this would have been surprising to her. But it was the 50s, the 60s? The six, the late 60s, yeah. Yeah, I feel like anybody hopped in a car with anybody back then. You know? I know. Yeah. And then regardless of all of this, Eileen goes on to give a pretty detailed testimony. She says that she had, this is her recollection, and she has a lot of points in between that she doesn't remember, but these are the they're like sort of flashes she remembers. Okay. They had been driving, and they picked up Susan to give her a ride to school. But then when her dad got to the school, he told them they were going to play hooky. And he took them to like sort of a wooded area. They were playing in the car. They were fine. And then at one point she went to the rear of the van. It was a family van. Mm -hmm. And she said that she witnessed what appeared to be a sexual assault on Susan to her. She Mm. saw her father laying on top of Susan and Mm. moving his body in a thrusting motion. And she looked forward and saw her friend struggling to free her hands, which were being held above her head. And her next memory is standing on the side of the road, outside of the van, in a different area, and seeing her dad and Susan down in an embankment. And she said she went down and saw her father holding a rock above his head, standing over Susan. And then she thinks she looks away, and she remembers the sound of him hitting her in the head with the rock. And here she remembers the next thing she remembers is seeing her body and like it being all bloody and noting the bent ring and her father saying, this was all your fault for having invited Susan into the car in the first place. And she better keep her mouth shut or he'll kill her. Wow. Yes. She also remembers the next thing was helping him with something large from the van. She can't quite remember what it was. And the defense argues after her testimony that her story has changed over time. This is not the same account she had given the first couple of times. And that not only are we relying on testimony 20 years after the fact, but it's testimony from someone who was eight years old at the time. 
and that her husband was opportunistic in urging her to make the statement because he has, on her behalf, accepted book and movie deals. And uh. while she has said she wants the money to go to charity, she was forced on the stand to testify that her husband wants them to keep a significant portion of it. So. I have, oh God. <laughs> I don't know how I feel. I keep going. Keep going. <laughs> so January 29th, 1991, this would be probably immediately following when the year after this episode probably aired. Yeah. So at this point, you know, that's where the episode, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So this is going to. Yes. Yeah, like the, at the time of writing, there is more evidence in this case to inspire. Well, not to inspire, but there's more evidence coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at this point, this is where we break from where the episode aired, and all of this mm-hmm. happens post-Law and Order. Okay. Season two, episode seven. January 29th, 1991, George Foster is sentenced to life in prison for the 1969 murder of Susan Nason. Wow. Mm-hmm. There were allegations made in the probate court afterwards when they're just determining sentencing that he had sexually attacked his children before. And Ugh. there was an allegation that once he held a gun to his ex-wife's head. But I will say that there was only one article of the like 12 or 13 that I read that says this. Okay. Um, so I don't know the validity of them, but it was mentioned that it's in his prob- probate court records. So George Foster, he maintains his innocence throughout everything. Um, the ADA called him in the press the, quote, worst specimen of pedophile and child murderer who deceived the world at large, end quote. And his ex-wife spoke after trial before sentencing, saying he should never be freed and said that the act that was described in the courtroom was evil and not human. Hmm. Now, here is okay. where things get interesting. <laughs> okay. About five years later, December 1995, U.S. District Judge D. Lowell or Lowell Jensen overturned his conviction based on several items. Okay. One, the debate over repressed memory had become far more public at that point. A lot yeah. of it because of this case, actually. Hmm. Um, okay. And there were many studies and experts who had come out disputing the validity of repressed memory retrieval two during trial one the jury was given instructions by the judge that violated franklin's constitutional rights which we'll get into okay and three this was deemed to have been way too prejudicial because of what ended up violating his rights so because of this they overturned the conviction so a piece of evidence that was presented to the court during the first trial was that there was a jailhouse meeting that was set up by the prosecution between elaine and her father and during that meeting, she asked him if he would confess to the crime. And during that meeting, he, he did not. Um, and at one point, he points to a sign in the jailhouse that says that conversations were monitored. Oh, yeah. And the judge during the first trial had told the jury to consider this a possible admission of guilt. But that vi- uh, that violates his rights of self-incrimination. Yeah, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's another big reason why this case was... Um, overturned thrown out yeah because that was way too prejudicial they thought for sure so july of 1996 the following year they decide that there will be no retrial of george franklin he's exonerated and released from prison after six and a half years a key piece of evidence that helped secure this not having a retrial was evidence can i just say i'm surprised he survived six years in prison as a uh-huh. uh, child rapist and murderer Seriously. <laughs> like, I, d- I didn't think that they made it i think that the they couldn't prove anything about the sexual you know stuff so oh, that's not something it. he was actually tried for just the murder but still child okay. murder 
Yeah. Yeah. So one of the key pieces of evidence that helps um, him avoid a second trial is Eileen's sister, his daughter, Janice, who is who has been and continues to be on Eileen's side throughout all of this, she testified that she and her sister had been hypnotized prior to the trial to help enhance their memories. Okay. Um, this helps make the testimony inadmissible. Right. So, oh, another piece of evidence that came out was that in the first trial, the judge would not allow the defense to enter newspaper articles into evidence. Um, and they wanted to enter these into evidence because every detail that Eileen had recounted from her repressed memories had been published in the newspaper multiple times. Oh, okay. And so this would have shown that much of the repressed memories that she regained could have just been gleaned from the newspapers. Reading, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, the ring that she was wearing that had been bent. So Susan wore two rings that were very different in description. And okay. the one that was bent that was described by Eileen in her recovered memories mm -hmm. was the same one that was reported on in the newspaper that had been bent. However, the newspaper got it wrong, and it was the other ring. Oh. Which was not known at the time. Okay, yeah. She also testified, I don't know if this was during the trial or during her initial statement, but she had testified on the record that her father and her godfather, who's not mentioned here, it's not important, had abducted and killed two other girls— um, specifically, 18-year-old Veronica Cascio and 17-year-old huh. Paula Baxter. Okay. For both of these cases, they looked into it, and DNA evidence um, excluded both her father and her godfather from these crimes, and they were both solidly alibied in other places. Sorry, so uh, just to clarify for myself, Eileen had said that her father and her godfather had committed other murders. Yes, rapes and murders. And he, she said she witnessed them. Oh, oh, wow. She okay. witnessed them driving and picking up a girl off the side of the road and then has flashes of memories of them, one sexually assaulting them and then the other covering up the crime. God, okay. But as I said, DNA both, evidence has That was fixed. false. Yes, exactly. Which also went against her validity of her repressed memories being coming back. Okay, so Franklin's attorney said that he had, because of all of his time in jail and the press and the public opinion of him, that he'd been, quote, flattened like a pancake and lost everything he had earned in this world, his house, his reputation, and his dignity, let alone all of his earthly possessions, end quote. After Franklin's release, he pursued a federal lawsuit that was ultimately dismissed. There's been no new updates as to whether... Or as to the whereabouts of Eileen or George Franklin, I believe George Franklin has passed on at this point. There are a couple of updates I can provide on the case in general. Okay. In 2018, the rape murders of 18-year-old Veronica Cascio and 17-year-old Paula Baxter that Eileen had remembered mm -hmm. were linked with DNA evidence to Rodney Lynn Haubauer, who is also mm. known as the San Mateo Slasher. Oh, Okay. And in the year 2000, Donald Nason, the father of um, the victim, Susan, he passed away at the age of 64 to a heart attack. But to his dying day, he passed on believing that Franklin was guilty of the crime and should not have been exonerated. Hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of the ultimate end of this story. It's just interesting because the case took such a drastic, sharp turn after the show, you know, quote unquote, ripped it from the headlines. Right. And yeah. there's still so much significant debate on repressed memories to this day. There's been increased cases of repressed memories over a time, over the past decade, specifically, that have been proven false with concrete yeah. evidence and coerced confessions and false memory 
they sort of like link in with the idea of repressed memory. And so mm-hmm. it's just not currently an accepted belief in any psychological related field at large. In 1992, the False Memory, Sin- False Memory Syndrome Foundation made strong claims and submitted evidence to create this diagnosis of false memory syndrome, but mm. the review board found no empirical evidence or data or validation in any of their reports, and much of their work was based on assumptions and has been significantly disproven scientifically. And yeah. so according to the mental health community, um, false memory syndrome is pseudoscience. But how does, like, I remember things that I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. How is that different? <laughs> well, so the studies into repressed memory, they've come a long way. So I don't want to say most, but a significant number of people in the field generally believe that false memory, not false memories, repressed memories are quote unquote real. Um, and uh-huh. that the mind does have the ability to store unconscious and traumatic memories in a different area of the brain. I think it's yeah. something to do with the hippocampus, but I don't really remember reading too much about it. And the the biggest debate right now is more about the possibility of retrieving or extracting these memories, I believe. Yeah. I think there's a lot of debate that the memories are repressed and then gone essentially. Hmm. And so there are methods that are used, hypnosis, um, exposure therapy. There's a lot of different things people would argue could be used, but there's nothing to prove it. Oh, so psychologist Elizabeth Loftus is a known critic of repressed memories and the idea of retrieving them. Mm -hmm. Um, She's done lots of studies that are really public about false memory implantation. She's been able to successfully, um, in her... (laughs) in her studies, convinced more than a quarter of their participants that they had been sexually assaulted with a fictional story that she had created and sort That's of That's traumatic. <laughs> I know. I, I, I hope that the, the experiments are considered a little controversial because, yeah. not necessarily because of the subject matter, believe it or not, but because the people who debate about the validity of her experiments is they say that, you know, how could you prove that in a, in a non-experimental environment that this would happen still? Yeah. So, but, you know, a lot of events like, you know, the, um, I think it was in 2016 or 2018, somewhere between then, do you remember the Pizzagate scandal? Ugh, yes. So, like, that that scandal at Comet, Ping Pong, and um, the Satanic Panic at large. Yes. They're cited as examples of how dangerous repressed memories and playing on the trauma of child sexual assault can, you know, influence people in very serious and violent ways. For sure. So a lot of the satanic panic, which I didn't really realize this, a lot of their, the people who believed in, in you know, Satanists and these rituals, and a lot of it centered around child sacrifice. Yes. And that yeah. was like the big fear that they were implanting in your mind, like child sacrifice, child sacrifice. And this kind sure. of like idea of people re- recovering memories of these um, rituals was the thing that was happening at that time. Hmm. Interesting. So the idea of repressed memories came into the satanic panic conversation. And gotcha. so it can be very dangerous when you when people are taken advantage of, I feel like. Yeah. Yes. And not told that, <laughs> you know, uh, hey, these things are experimental. Hey, this isn't actual data that we're putting out there. This is an account of something. You know, it's right. just so the to this day the debate wages on. Um we could probably do a whole episode on repressed memories, probably a whole podcast on it, but Um, yes hopefully we get the chance to revisit this because it's a topic i'm actually very 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 particularly specifically interested in 
I can guarantee you at some point in the next 20 seasons of Law and Order, <laughs> we will encounter repressed memories again. I can't imagine. I wonder if they'll like revisit this case. I, I bet the Law and Order wiki would have told us, but. Yeah, um, probably. But yeah, that's that's basically all I got. Wow, great job. What? <sighs> yeah, I still don't know how I feel about any of that. I know. I'm so <laughs> conflicted because I knew what the case was before I watched the episode. I knew the, the gist of it, that it had been a, a case of a repressed memory convicting someone of a murder and then them later being exonerated. Right. But I didn't know the details of it yet. And I was like, oh, great. Good for him. He got exonerated. And now I'm like, I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Because yeah. a, lot of, a lot of what I read about um, this case was that despite him being exonerated, a lot of the information that came about from his family were that he was a pretty, like, horrific person. Like, he wasn't right. a great father. He wasn't, right. um, he had a temper. He was violent in some ways. Even the though that one article talked about the sexual abuse and the gun, and I couldn't find anything else about it, the other articles still referenced abuse in the home. And um, mm. one of the articles I read that talks a lot about repressed memories and references this case argues that if... It's true that these repressed memories were not, in, in fact, accurate, and they were things that she sort of gleaned from the newspaper articles and from a lot of other trauma in her life. Mm -hmm. Looking back at her book, she's the one who wrote the book, by the way, um, Sins of the Father in 1991. Spoiler alert. Oh. So she co-wrote the book with, um, you know, a writer. So maybe ghost, yeah, ghostwritten yeah. Carol, <laughs> Carol Razzywell. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, they argue that in that book, she recounts horrific experiences in the home with your father and it wouldn't be unlikely that someone who's experiencing this trauma would repress a lot of those types of memories and harbor feelings towards her father that she couldn't understand which she also writes about in the book until the memories right. came up and it wouldn't be hard to believe that someone who has experienced a lot of trauma and has repressed memories when like sorting through that with the influence of like reading newspapers and seeing all this stuff and then being hypnotized could maybe ascribe some of the details to a different person rather than herself right? or her family members, someone that was like not as quite as connected to protect herself. So that's yeah. a theory too, that I would totally understand and like believe to be true because she doesn't seem to have any motive to put her father in prison. She even says in a lot of the interviews, like, I'm not really winning here. I just feel like I have to do this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, she did, you know, get a book deal. She has written two books about this. She has gotten movie deals. Hmm. Or, yeah, I just, I don't like this case. It has a very unsatisfying end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like the episode where they were just like, well, let's just wrap this up. Yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, if he did do it, I don't like that he was exonerated. But if he didn't do it, then I don't like that all of this false memory stuff put him in prison. Yeah. I think the one thing I can agree on from all of the articles for better or for worse is that the way our justice system is set up, if the only evidence that was presented at the first trial to implicate him for this crime was the repressed memory coming back right. up, that is not enough to no. put someone in yeah. prison, regardless of whether they're innocent or guilty based on our current justice right it system. would be really different if it was like i saw and knew all a bit about this but my father threatened to kill me anytime i brought it like that would be different <laughs> right, right right not oh i remembered this 30 years later i don't know it's weird That's so complicated mm. well great job thank you yeah <laughs> do you should we rate the episode yeah we should we okay. should do it <laughs> 
I think it was an interesting episode to watch. I think I would give it a a B. You know what? I'm going to downgrade it to a B minus, borderline C plus, only because it it bone collectored me and just randomly wrapped it up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to give it a man. I mean, I didn't love I'm going to give it a D for how it dealt with stuff because I didn't think they did a great job of like teasing out ooh, the causes behind this father's behavior or any of that kind of stuff. So, and they also dealt really poorly with the daughter Julie's like mental health in the episode. So, I'm going to say D for how it dealt with stuff. What about you? I am probably close to yours. I'm going to give it for watchability a solid C plus. Yeah. Um, for the same reasons, I don't like the way they dealt with um queer people for no good reason for no reason whatsoever like i thought they were going to further a conversation but you know they essentially talk to him he's a curmudgeon and they move on right they just used it as a plot device yeah so i thought that was totally unnecessary and strange and i also didn't like the fact that they just wrapped it up with a confession that came out of nowhere um and then for the way it dealt with the topic i'll give it a c minus um based on the fact that it came out before the exoneration and all that stuff I think that they dealt with a lot of really similar things to the actual case, like a lot of true, pretty good similarities, but I don't like the way they treated her on the stand. I feel like the wardrobe department must have really not liked that actress for the scrunchies they put her in. Oh, and they also had a character that you didn't call out, but she essentially reminded me of Gadget from Chip and Tails Rescue Rangers. She was like a, a mousy... Um, oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Glasses. She was the woman at the uh, the records <laughs> of the missing children. I I was like, this woman is such a character. I can't even, I couldn't describe her, but Gadget <laughs> from Rescue Rangers is perfection. <laughs> or she looks like she could be like, she's like a mousy, Five Mousekowitz's cousin, American yes. cousin. <laughs> if you can send me a screenshot of her, I'll put that on social media. Oh, definitely. Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, so if you enjoy listening to us and think that other folks might too, the best thing you can do is to rate and review us on whatever platform you're using to listen to our episodes, because that will help other people find us. And if you tell a friend who you think might be interested, I would be so personally delighted. (laughs) You have no idea. So excited. Word of mouth is like the biggest way we get around, so please tell a friend. Also, you can find us on social media. Um, we are Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. And we absolutely love getting email from listeners. So flee, please, please feel free to send us a note. Yeah, absolutely my favorite. And don't forget in the meantime to check out our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com. I know we've been talking about it for a while, but we have been adding to it every week. And our Patreon and merch store will be coming out soon. We have so many fun ideas that we're almost ready to launch. Yes. And we also love collaborating with other folks. So if you are a true crime podcaster or you know of one that we would uh, that you would like to see us collaborate with, put us in touch. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the fact and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.